0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit LifePointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit MlaneHarrison.com. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ethan Lippert, and I'm the pastoral associate here at the church. It's such a joy to be able to gather uh, with each one of you each week and worship the living God. Uh, it's truly a privilege, and it's a, it's a blessing to be able to also preach from God's word this morning. So we're gonna be continuing in our summer series through the Gospel of Matthew, entitled Stories for Real Christ Followers. Jesus' is teaching on Gospel Living. And we're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 18. We've been in this chapter for the last three weeks. We saw how it opened up the fourth major discourse of the teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've seen Jesus lay out these principles to show his people, his disciples, what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And we're going to continue today with a, a topic that's countercultural in every way. Um, There's ideas in the culture of love and and of greatness, although they're convoluted many times, but we're going to talk about restoration from sin this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20. And a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word and should be believed and received by us. As such, this morning. So, as I was thinking through this sermon, I kept thinking of one word Legos. It's kind of random, I know. Uh, Parents, you either love Legos or you hate Legos, or your feet, like mine, are permanently damaged because of Legos. Like, that's a true thing, okay? But many of us didn't know, at least I didn't before I started looking into this, that back in 2010, Lego, the company, was going through uh, financial turmoil. Like, everything about their business was heading down. Uh, They were almost bankrupt. Uh, The toys that they were selling, they just weren't working. So they decided to lay everything out on the table and just swipe it off. They had some major restoration that they needed to do to their business. So they brought in new designers. They brought in new ideas for toys. They laid it all out and they're like, okay, this will work. And it did work. And in fact, their business is now more successful and they struggled to even keep up with the customer's demands. But it wasn't until they realized that everything about what they were doing had to change. It had to be restored for it to work. Okay, And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit in the, about the church today. Because when we stray away in our sin, when we stray away in our flesh, we fall apart just like Lego was. And just like them, we need some restoration in our life. And God, through his son Jesus, calls us to be restored from our sin so that we can thrive as his church and live for his glory. So this leads me to my main point for the morning that Jesus loves his church. So he calls us to be restored from sin and to live together with unwavering unity. Jesus loves his church, so he calls us to be restored from sin and to live together in unwavering unity. And I want us to see from Matthew 18:15 through 20 in our text, three desires that I believe Jesus has and Jesus is showing his disciples that he wants to be true about his church. The first desire is Jesus desires his church to confront sin and be restored from it. Okay, so, so far in, in in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 18, we've seen Jesus, like, radically redefining what it looks like to live in his kingdom. He's, he's shown us that greatness doesn't start up here, it starts down here. He says that you need to cut off your temptations to sin completely. He shows you that genuine love uh, for his people looks completely different than the world's definition of love. And that's what he's doing here, too. He's going to be radically redefining how we handle disputes with other Christians. And as we enter into this text, I wanna give a little precursor to what this text is known to be talking about. It's talking about a, a topic, a doctrine called church discipline. Now, I don't know if you're like me, when I hear the word discipline, it's not always like a fuzzy you know, feeling I get, I get in my heart. Um, and that's probably true of some of you, but there's good news because when God talks about discipline in the New Testament, It's always a good thing because God corrects those he loves. And so when we see this word discipline in the New Testament, it's a great thing. And church discipline is vital for the church to practice with one another for the sake of unity and purity in the church. And some of you may have heard of this, the term and some of you may have not heard, but it is done in practice. This process that we're gonna see is done within the local church. And the local church is made up of those who have joined together as members in agreement under the authority of Jesus Christ. So look back with me at Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother so Jesus usually teaches in parables but here he's he's giving a hypothetical situation he says say your brother sins against you and when Jesus is saying brother he's not just talking about siblings I mean we know that they fight all the time but he's he's broadening it out he's talking about believers Christians as a whole when your fellow Christian sins against you and he's answering the question what do we do about it And he says, we go to them and we tell them their fault alone. And so when we look at the word sin, it's good we get a clear definition about what that is because sin at its root is breaking the eternal holy law of the Lord, both in our personal sin against him and our sinful state before him. So think about in your own life, Maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years, maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years, maybe you've been a Christian for a week, I don't know. Um, But think of a time that a Christian has sinned against you. That's a hard thing to think about, but it, it happens a lot because Christians are sinful people still. Think about a time where you have maybe felt belittled by another believer, showed partiality towards. Think of a time maybe you felt unheard and you just felt so broken about it. Think, think about your marriage if you're married. Think about those fights that no one sees, those things that are said that just cut to the heart. We can be so quick to think that these things are common, because sin can so commonly come up in our life, but Jesus is saying that we still need to deal with it. And that's what he's showing us in our text, um, because Christians are not sinless like I said and their lives often get messy with sin but Christ is calling us out of it because we are set free and we don't have to live in it any longer. And I I don't know about you but I'm not a type of person that likes to confront people in their sin. I'm not like, okay, I'm I'm not a confrontational person. Now confronting sin is different than confrontational but I like to hide back in my shell and kind of leave things alone but Jesus is showing us here in this text that true Christ-like love seeks to confront other believers sin in fact if we did not address other sin in the local church we would actually be showing by our actions that we didn't love them it's serious we hear it all over today love is love but I am here to say that the Bible teaches that love is love only if truth is the basis of our love for one another. Loving one another as Christians means that we address the sin in one another's lives. Don't hear me saying we need to nitpick and be um, legalistic with our um, calling out of other people's sins. That's not what I'm saying, but if there is blatant, obvious sin against the holy word of God, we would not be doing what Christ has called us to do if we did not go to them in love. And so in the second verse, or the second half of this verse is so important to understand why we do it. If he listens to us, we have gained our brother. Hear that? We confront other people, other Christians in, our, in their sin because if they listen, we've gained them. We've restored them back to the Lord through the amazing work of Christ. We don't confront others uh, who have sinned or sinned against us to make a point or to justify ourselves or to say, Hey, look, I'm better than you, like condemning and guilt. But listen to what Galatians 6.1 says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Our heart's desire must be to gently confront, seeking to build them up, to restore them, to raise them above ourselves, and saying, brother, sister, turn back to Christ. He is worth it. He is worth it. But what if they don't listen to us? Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here in this this verse, Jesus is alluding to an Old Testament uh, passage from Deuteronomy. In, in in the Old Covenant the people of God were to confront one another in judicial matters with two or three witnesses. They couldn't just say like one person says this and I say this, like hearsay. There had to be evidence and witness of the crime that was being charged against them. And Jesus kind of reinstitutes this in the new covenant in a different way. He, he reinstitutes the idea that every sin done against a believer or every sin that's committed by a believer, if they refuse to repent when someone com- comes to them, then a small group needs to come and to mediate. And so I also want to put reference back to what I said at first. If, if you are confronting another person and they're saying because they've sinned against you, you go to them alone. Don't slander, don't gossip, don't do all of these things that we're so tempted to do in our flesh, but the loving thing is to do to go to them alone. So I was thinking through this and I, I really dislike putting things together. Like, Ikea is like my worst nightmare seriously, I don't even, it would take me five hours to take you, What would take you guys like two hours to put together. But I, I was 18. I was newly married to my wife. We were expecting my daughter and somehow we got this changing table. Now, I swear marketers just come up with great ideas of furniture that just to extract more money out of parents, like who needs a changing table? Or at least that was my 18-year-old mind thinking. But so so I get this changing table and and I take the wood out, I take the screws out, I take the tools out, I leave the instruction book because that's important to leave in the box and I begin to put it together and I'm putting this together and I'm like, okay, you know, good enough, I mean, sure. And I, I stand it up and I put my hand on it and it's like, five pounds of pressure. And I'm like, this'll work. Wait, wait, marriage wisdom kicking in. Okay, okay. Tatum will not think this is going to work. So we need to do something about this. And reluctantly, I bring in uh, my wife to help, my father-in-law, they were able to help me see how I had really screwed up this changing table. I think we still had to bolt it into the wall and we lost our security deposit when we left. But that's besides the point. I was completely blind to my own mistakes until I had help from outside perspectives. And, And here's what I think Jesus is teaching us, that he's not wanting us as his people to be condemned when we fail to see our own sin. This isn't a work of condemnation. But Jesus will use the church to call out and to restore brothers and sisters in sin so they can be brought back through genuine repentance. That's the purpose. And here's why it's important to realize that the church can't live in unrepentant sin. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says about the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is why God's people cannot live in unrepentant sin. When the father looks at his people, his church, he sees the perfect spotless blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. And if you have been born again by the spirit of God, you have been regenerated, you've been made new. You agree with God as you're shown in His Word what sin is, and you agree with God to put that sin to death. Now we all struggle with sin and we wallow in it for some time, for, for sometimes lengths of time. But for the Christian, it is impossible for them to stay in unrepentant sin until their death. And that's why Jesus is using his church here. This is how important holiness and purity is amongst the body of believers. The church is a people for God's own possession. We're not our own. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that we do not own ourselves. It's good that the eternal God owns us through Christ Jesus. And now through the discipline of God and the correction of one another, we strive after that purity in realization that we're already pure before God. Like that's true of us, so it's going to be true about us. And that's what God is doing. God does not discipline those he hates, but rather the child that he loves. And if God loves us this way, how much more or how much in line should his people love people the same way? And part of that love is a disciplining love. It's a correcting love. It's coming alongside and showing the beauty and the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and walking alongside them to point them back to him. So let's keep working through. We're at Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The hope is by this point, the sinner, the offender who has sinned is restored to Christ. Because this is hard. But if the offender still denies seeing their sin and in in, in denies their need to turn away from it, they need to be presented before the church. If the person stuck in sin won't respond to the loving, crying pleas of the church to turn back to God, then they are to be counted as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now Jesus ministered and loved the Gentiles and the tax collector, but they were not of Jesus they were not of his kingdom but here's the here's the point of that the church doesn't just excommunicate kick them out and say we're done with you but the heart of the believers the church changes towards them and they pray continually for restoration and reunitedness of that person to come back to Christ but unless that person turns to Jesus they've shown by the fruit of their life that they are functionally an unbeliever Continuance in sin with no repentance and desire to be transformed into the glory of Jesus shows that there is unbelief in a rejection of the gospel. Where do you see sin in your own life? Are are you taking steps to walk in obedience to God's word? Yes, imperfectly. All of us are imperfect in that, but trusting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Or are you walking day-to-day life in shame and guilt, trying to hide that one sin that keeps conquering and mastering you? If you're stuck in that one sin, whatever it may be, I want to encourage you, submit that sin to Christ. Get involved with his people, his church, not because they have it all figured out, but because Jesus, the head of his church, does have it figured out. He has it figured out. Jesus, through his spirit, uses the church to purify one another in restoring us as we await the return of Christ. And another question is, how are you confronting sin in other believers' lives? How are you confronting sin when people sin against you Let me encourage you, when they're stumbling in sin, you have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. And with a genuine love to see them restored back to Christ, God will use those conversations to strengthen one another and build up his church. It's part of it, it's a a hard part of the church, but it's a wonderful, beautiful restoring part of what God has for his people. All right, the second desire of Jesus is Jesus desires unity in the church for authoritative decisions. Jesus desires unity in the church for authoritative decisions. Look with me at Matthew 18:18. 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we saw as we were opening up in verse 17 how Jesus said if this person who's stuck in sin refuses to repent, they need to be presented before the church. Why is this important? Because Jesus has given the local church the authority to declare this person is not a Christian or is a Christian. And what do I mean by that? So the church gathered as protecting the doctrine of the church as given by Christ and the authority he's given them can say, yes, their profession of Jesus Christ aligns with that of scripture. Therefore, we can know by their profession that they are a Christian as well as any human can know that they're a Christian. Or we can say, no, they are not a Christian because their profession of Christ does not align with the truth of scripture. That's what I mean, and when the word church is used in the Gospel of Matthew, it's important that we take note because it's rarely used, but what Jesus is saying is the church is the assembly of believers. It's the gathered people. It's the people who have left their former lives of darkness, of sin, wandering in the wilderness, if you like that illustration, and they have come to assemble as new redeemed people. God's people, Christ's church. So Jesus here is extending his authority to his disciples to make decisions to both prohibit and to allow. That's what binding means. It means to prohibit something. And that's what loosing means. It means to allow something. So the church makes decisions to prohibit and to allow through the authority of Jesus. And when we read through this, I'm reminded of chapter 10 of Matthew, when Jesus called the apostles. Like these men were considered inintelligent in the eyes of the religious authority. These guys didn't have it figured out. They were considered stupid to the world. But Jesus didn't see what the world sees. He saw what he had planned and purposed. So he called them. And he gave them, in Matthew chapter 10, amazing authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out unclean spirits, and to heal every affliction. And in this story, Jesus told the apostles don't bring a bag, don't bring a tunic, don't bring money, don't bring anything, but go out and I will be with you. And if no one listens to the message of the person you come to in their house doesn't listen to the message, wipe the dust off your feet when you leave because they have not denied you, but the one who sent you. That's the kind of authority that we're talking about. We represent Jesus. And I don't want to say, or I do want to say that Christ gave these, this authority in Matthew 10 to the apostles, so it's it's that is specifically in context talking about them, but in Matthew 18, 18, Jesus is instituting another another authority here for the church. Yes, we hear, come to hear the word preached on a Sunday gathering. We hear or we come to sing his praises, we come to fellowship and to be strengthened by each other's companionship. But there's another role that God has given to his church, and it's to make decisions. They carry the authority of God on earth for the glory of God. It's legislative decisions. There's real authority in that. And that's how we fulfill our part of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The decisions made by the local church with intentional binding or loosing for the glory of God is backed by God's full authority. Now, when Jesus was teaching this in Matthew 18. he was with his disciples in the flesh, right? He was with them. But here we are 2,000 years later after, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and some might ask, Jesus, how are we supposed to keep the church pure? How are we supposed to keep false teaching out of the church? How are we supposed to know how to enact the, this process of church discipline, God? You're, you're not with us in the flesh, And here's the hope as Christ followers today. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't withhold his authoritative power from his people, but he gave it to the church. When Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, he says, when you trust my word and surrender to my spirit, your decisions as the local church gathered under the direction of the elders and the engagement of the congregation will be backed in heaven completely. When there's false teaching, We make binding decisions, prohibiting it from coming into the church and infiltrating the true pure doctrine that Christ has given to us. When people try to accumulate for themselves teachers that'll tell them what they want to hear rather than the truth, we stand firm as the church to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified for the salvation of all who believe in him. And when people come into the church and stir up division, We proclaim unity in the church as his people gathered under his name because Christ has unified us in his Holy Spirit. We're not left to our own devices to deal with sin or to deal with false teaching or to deal with the devil himself. But Christ has given us his authority to rest in him and to act for his glory in the world today. The third desire is Jesus desires his church to come together and pray in agreement. Jesus desires his church to come together to pray in agreement. For you parents here, you know, I I don't know how you deal with surprises. Maybe you tell your kids, you you tell them nothing at all, and then you surprise them. Uh, But if you're like me, I'll say, you got, you, we're going to the zoo in a week and there's, I got a surprise for you. And then I'm like, oh, they're excited. And then like, okay, three minutes later, I tell them everything about the surprise because I'm just excited to get their reaction, right? And, and when I tell them sometimes, um, they're not excited like I want, I'm like, that's how you feel? Like I would be way more excited than you are right now about this. <sighs> anyway, this is kind of how I envision the disciples at this moment, right? Jesus has just given them heavenly authority, to uh, show them how they have authority in the church, but they just don't grasp the magnitude of it. And so here Jesus expands their understanding in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So I'll be honest, there's a little bit of discrepancy in this transition of Matthew 18 to whether it's still talking about church discipline or if we're talking about prayer now. Um, and so it's a little bit hard uh, to navigate, but in verse 19 and 20, Jesus' disciples in the context of church discipline, I think it is in the context of church discipline, but Jesus is broadening the scope of what he's talking about. He's, he's gonna broaden their understanding of what he's talking about. And I think the key word here is anything. If you agree on earth, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's a powerful promise, is it not? Jesus is saying that when you come together with two believers and pray in agreement, now, not just in the same room, I mean, that's not gonna do anything for you, but you come together in agreement through the Holy Spirit and you pray, there's tremendous uh, power of God that is at work. He's working in those prayers more than we can even comprehend. God cares about our needs, and more than that, he doesn't want us to seek those to be met alone, but he wants us to come together in them. That's that's the unity we're talking about. That's the unity. God cares about our needs, and when we pray together, seeking the Holy Spirit to work in our heart, he himself intercedes for our exact desire that he's brought about in our own heart. Now, Jesus isn't promising when we pray about anything that our flesh desires, we're gonna get it. But here's where I think there is confidence. Our flesh isn't gonna have the final say when we humbly seek God's will in prayer. But God's will through his spirit is being revealed to us. So when the saints of Christ pray, God is at work. He is bringing his will into our hearts and our prayers echo the glorious plans of God for the church and for the world. Matthew eighteen twenty. for where two or three are gathered in my name there am I among them so I know this is kind of like a cliche verse a lot of people have used this to say Jesus is at our prayer meetings but let me be an encouragement Jesus is at your prayer meetings but he's also when you're not at a prayer meeting okay Matthew 28 in the great commission Jesus says I am always with you to the very end of the age If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you right now. He is with you, he won't forsake you, he goes before you. But I think in the context of what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is wanting to see that in future days, there may be times where there's only two or three or 10 people in the church. We don't know much about that here, but church history, looking around at other countries with communism, here's the point what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't just work in powers where numbers of people reside. Jesus wants to comfort them in their church of two or three or ten or however many we have here at LifePoint. He wants to comfort them through his word. And even when it feels like everyone's walking in darkness and everyone in the world is not listening to Christ, he is still with us in his presence at the church. The power of Christ is not limited to the number of people that are gathered in his name. So as we reflect on our text this morning, I want to ask a question. Where is it in your life that Jesus wants to restore you from sin? What's that one sin that needs to be unturned? If you're a Christian here this morning, which I pray and hope and know that so many of you are, and you try to walk in the darkness of your sin, you're gonna be like a fish trying to breathe oxygen. It's not gonna work. You weren't made for it to work. You know, in Christ, you were made to walk in holiness. So when you don't, it's not gonna produce joy, peace, hopefulness, faithfulness. It's not gonna produce those things that you desire in your heart. Jesus does not want you to leave this morning without, without identifying, repenting, turning back to Him, and finding that He's sufficient for everything that you need, He is enough he's enough. And maybe you're not walking in sin that's hidden, but my encouragement to you this morning is to do all that you can to keep it that way. What do I mean by that? Be quick to repent of those sins that you see in your day-to-day life. Be quick to identify them and to repent of them. Be quick to confess to one another. Be quick to get involved in community so that you can be strengthened and matured and transformed more and more into the glory of the image of Jesus Christ. And another question, are you struggling with hatred towards another brother or sister, another Christian, because of a a sin that they've done against you? Are you holding what they've done against you against them? That's not where God calls you to be. It's not what he wants for you. Go to them, be reunited with them. Forgive them as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, God loves you because you are made in his image and his creation, but God hates your sin. The Bible teaches us that whoever does not believe and trust in the son of God, God's wrath remains on them. Here's the good news. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord is eternal life. All who look to what Christ did when he came to the cross, He died the death that we deserve. Then he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. If you look to him, his perfection will be placed on you. You'll be born again, even as the spirit works in your heart now. Trust in him, believe in him. He will make you new and change everything about you. Will you trust in Jesus today? Jesus loves his church. So he calls us to be restored from sin and live together in unwavering unity. Let's pray.